Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. A sermon about how the Palm Sunday story captures two important sides of Jesus' character and work. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to encourage you to attend church on Easter, which is next Sunday. Easter is a great day for you to go to church for the first time or get back into church if you haven't gone in a while. If you live in our area, we would love to have you at our service. It is at 4 p.m. and you can find all of the information you need by visiting wilsonville.church Easter. If you go to that page, you can even get a free Easter basket filled with some pretty cool stuff when you attend our Easter service. If you're not in our area, find a good church near you and go. I know it can be difficult to find a church that is a good fit, so let me extend this invitation to you. It would be my pleasure to help you find a good church in your area that is the right fit for you. If you want help, just go to creekside.me and click on the respond button. On the form, just say that you're looking for a church in your area, and I'll email you personally to help. That is how important I think it is that you go to church, not just Easter, but always. If you're interested in attending our church, it is wilsonville.church Easter. And if you want help finding a church near you, it is creekside.me and then click on the respond button. Do it right now. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon helps you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. It's Palm Sunday. And uh, as you've heard before, if you've gone to this church more than, uh, you know, uh, 12 months, then, then you've heard me talk about this. But as, uh, as a kid, what I remember about Palm Sunday and celebrating it in, in my church is that we had palm branches and then we, we also had beach balls and we would hit the beach balls around. And through the years, I have, I have taught on the Palm Sunday story in every way that I can possibly think to teach on the Palm Sunday story, uh, to the point where I just skipped it last year. It's like I just went right over it and pretended it didn't happen. But we've put all of those on our, our website. You can go to our sermons page on our website and click on Palm Sunday sermons. But what I've learned through the years in teaching on Palm Sunday so many times is that, that it's actually a much more complicated story in some ways than then maybe we give it credit for. We, we take it as this event that, that is really kind of singular in nature most of the time, just this celebration. But what we forget is that, that it, it, it wasn't so black and white. It wasn't just a group of people celebrating who Jesus was. It was a group of people celebrating who Jesus was, and then mixed in that group were people who wanted to murder him, and mixed in that group were disciples, as we'll see today, that were confused about what was going on, and mixed in that group was a whole bunch of people that probably didn't even know who Jesus was, but they came out and saw the crowds and chanted right along, and, and then some in that group, you know, believed that Jesus a lot, that, that he was exactly what they were yelling for, but um, but, and this is really to the point of today, not exactly in the way that they thought he was the thing that they wanted him to be. And, and, and there, this is the thing about the Palm Sunday story that I, that I love, and this is what I want to think about this afternoon. There are stories in our lives that, that, that kind of de- like define, you know, like who we are and what we're going to be about in our lives. And uh, we have these moments that really... Uh, they, they are, you know, they, they kind of show who, who we are and what we're about. I, I just think of, and this is a, kind of a stupid example, but, um, but I think about like last year I, I played in this basketball tournament in Salem called Hoopla, and, and we were in Hoopla, and it's on 
the only reason I could do that is because we were having church at 4 p.m. And so like I, I like have hoopla and like I'm gonna be late to preach a sermon if we keep winning, but I'm like excited about that. And that day was just so indicative of like who I am. Like, like I wanted to preach my sermon, but I wanted to compete and I didn't wanna lose, but I also didn't wanna be late to church. And like, I just look at that day and think, oh, that's so like that day is kind of a Chad day, right? Like it's, it's got my sports and my competitiveness, but also my desire to preach and, and be a pastor and all of those things. And, and what's interesting about Palm Sunday to me and what we're gonna see today, I guess, in, in John's telling of it, is I really believe that, that it kind of defines these things about Jesus. It, it shows us like a couple of different sides, maybe the most important sides of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And I think we see that in some ways. What, what makes that stand out in the book of John, which we've been working our way through for several months, what makes that stand out in the book of John, I think, is, is how this Palm Sunday story, if you don't know it, I'll read it to you in a second. This Palm Sunday story sits like almost directly in the middle of the book of John. Now, I don't know if that's intentional, but I do know, and we've talked about this before, that John is written in a thematic way. It's, it's written to draw your attention to certain themes. And that's one of the reasons that it's, it's been so easy to preach through and, and to divide up into series. Because as you move through the book, we've seen like these, these big sections that were really easy to preach about because they show us certain aspects about Jesus. And there's one passage that I skipped over in the middle of all of that, and it was the Palm Sunday story, which seems to sit kind of in the middle of these great themes that John wants to present to us as he writes this, this letter, this gospel that we call John. And so today we are, as you can maybe guess now, we're actually going back in time from where we've been, if you've been with our church and you've followed through the book of John, but we're also going like way back uh, in chronology a little bit back, but in kind of the book of John, we're going way, way back, like six, seven chapters back. And, and that's because the Palm Sunday story falls in John chapter 12. We're already up to the death of Jesus near the end of the book. And, and here's how that story reads in the gospel of John. John 12, 12 through 15. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now to put it within the context of John, just how the book of John works, and I hope this offers you some level of review if you've been around for a while and you've been working your way through the book of John with us. John begins with this giant Christology, a fancy word for like the, the study of who Jesus is, and he begins by telling us that Jesus has always existed, that he is God and he was with God. He demonstrates this unity with God and he calls Jesus God, and on top of that, we see that within him is light and life, and if we want to have light and life, then we can only find it in one place, it's him, because he is not only filled with light and life, he is the source of light and life for all of us who desire to have it. And this life and this light, he becomes flesh, 
and he dwells among people. The creator of all that has been created, as I say over and over, the uncreated creator of all that has been created, he comes down to dwell with people. And from there, John moves into another section and he talks about all of these encounters with Jesus. That's what we call the sermon series where people meet Jesus and upon a meeting, meeting him, they are deeply impacted by what he says to them or what they experience when they are around him. And then from there, he, the gospel moves into a section where Jesus does some incredible miracles and teaches some incredible things. And in response to that, everybody is completely divided. Either you're with Jesus or you're against Jesus. You're with Jesus or you're against Jesus. And this culminates in him raising a man from the dead named Lazarus. And people are obviously blown away by that. They're excited about that. They're flocking to Jesus because of that. But the religious leaders who are against him, they really move forward in their desire and even their plot to kill Jesus, to get rid of Jesus. And all of this is told in hopes that we will believe, this comes from John 20, 31, that we will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so that's the setup, and then, then, we read this story where, where people come out, they're there in Jerusalem for the festival and they come out of the city and they're waving palm branches. We only know that they're palm branches from the Gospel of John and, and they are reciting Psalm 118, which you just did, at least a portion of Psalm 118. That's why we did it. If you were wondering, like, why did we read that very long thing that we just read? It's because this is what the people are chanting. It's from Psalm 118. And 18. Now, to set this up in, in, in more of a historical context, although it's a biblical historical context, throngs of people traveled to Jerusalem during Passover. Jesus is going to die as the Passover lamb on Friday, and that's why the people are there. That's why these crowds are there. And there's, there's been some historical numbers that seem completely inflated, but just know that like tons of people descend upon Jerusalem for Passover, like, you know, thousands, and there's been people who have said in history, millions of people descended upon Jerusalem. The only thing I can compare this to, just in my brain, is Mount Angel, uh, because I, I go to Mount Angel once a month now to pray at the Abbey with another group of pastors from the Portland metro area. We go down there, we pray, uh, and, and I'd never really been to Mount Angel except during Oktoberfest, which is my favorite meal of the year. Uh, any meal. I love going down to the Mount Angel Oktoberfest. I went to, by the way, what, what some people say is the third best Oktoberfest in America, and they rank Mount Angels as fourth best. That has to be flip-flopped. I can't speak for one and two, but ours is better. The food is better. You get to buy different things at different places. But when you're in Mount Angel at Oktoberfest, it's like a sea of people, right? Like I'm squeezing my kids' hands and yelling at them not to move, you know, away from me because they're going to get lost. You go there to the Mount Angel Sausage Company on a Thursday in August or June, there's hardly anybody that lives in Mount Angel. And this is, this is the, the scene kind of at, at Palm Sunday. All of these outsiders are in town for the festival, some are already in Jerusalem, some are coming to Jerusalem, so there's people in front of Jesus, there's people behind Jesus, and, and there's people there who obviously think that Jesus 
is the Messiah. And he is not, by the way, publicly proclaimed himself to be that yet. Now, he did say it to a woman at the well in Samaria, but he's not publicly proclaimed himself to be the Messiah or, in other words, the king of Israel who will set things right for people. But there are people there that think that he is that one anyway. He's done so many amazing things. The things that I just talked about that John's presented for us leading up to this Palm Sunday story. He's done so many amazing things, including raising a guy, Lazarus, from the dead. And here in this story, despite Jesus never at this point declaring himself as the Messiah, it seems as though in this moment he does. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey at Passover. And this fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah Nine, nine. I love that it begins, don't be afraid. I think there's something in there, but I'll skip right over it and, and I'll move and just say there are hints here that, that he is not the Messiah that they thought he was going to be. Now, when I say that, I just want to make clear that it's the Messiah the Old Testament presented him to be. It's the Messiah that all the prophets had prophesied that he would be, but it's not the Messiah that they thought he was going to be but nonetheless he rides into town on this donkey and it is a declaration that I am the one I am the one that you are looking forward to they recognize in this moment that Jesus is saying I am the one who has come to set things Right, and so it's like a big party. Like I said, a big mixed up party where some people wanted to kill him and, uh, and some people are declaring him king. And, and as we'll see here, the disciples are like, what is happening right now? I'm not sure how to interpret all of what is happening here. But in this giant mess of a party, the people are shouting, Hosanna. I actually just saw before church today an Instagram post where somebody said, I... It's been today years, you know how people say that in memes, did I get that right? I'm not young enough to be quoting memes, but, um, but like it's been today years uh, since I learned that Hosanna is not a name for God, but actually a, a prayer, and that is real. Uh, Hosanna is not a name for God. When we sing Hosanna, it, it comes from, it's a phrase that originally was a request for salvation. Save us, I pray, or save us, we pray. That's what Hosanna meant. Over time, it became more of a declaration rather than a request. It became a statement of God has provided salvation or God saves. That's what Hosanna means. Next Palm Sunday, when we sing the Hosanna songs again on our big once a year Hosanna song singing day, you'll know what it means, I hope, that it means God saves or God save me, save me. And they wave these palm branches, uh, they wave these palm branches, and that's a sign of victory. So they're, they're chanting out, singing out, yelling out, God saves, and, and they have these palm branches, which is connected to victory. At, at Sukkot, we do something very similar, right? We don't have palms, but that's what would happen at Sukkot. For those of you who have celebrated Sukkot with us, we do exactly what we just did. We recite Psalm 118. It happens every day during Sukkot, and we wave branches that we find on our church's property. They're supposed to be palm branches, but we don't plan far enough in advance for that. And so we, we do this, and in Sukkot, I just will remind you what we're declaring in all of that. We're remembering that God is both present with us and he provides for us. And in some ways, that is what palm branches are all about. God is with us, he provides for us, God gives us 
victory. Simon the Maccabee, you can read about this in the, that section that's in between the Old and New Testament in Catholic Bibles. Uh, he drove Syrian forces out of Jerusalem and it was celebrated with palm branches. This is the people coming out to Jesus, recognizing him as king. We'll see that in a second. And with those palm branches, recognizing that he is going to be victorious. Then they recite the words of Psalm 118. We just did this. And in that, they use this messianic title and they even add to it. And they say, uh, the king of Israel. Nathaniel identified Jesus as king way back in chapter one. He said, this is the king of Israel. But now it seems that the masses, the crowds are starting to recognize the same thing. Starting to recognize the same thing. And so here is this crazy mixed up, listen to my old sermons that are more, I've done like depressing Palm Sunday sermons before that talk about what's going on here. This weird kind of moment that ends as fast as it begins with Jesus weeping. And it's just, a, it's just an interesting moment, but they are making this incredible declara- declaration of Jesus being King and Messiah, uh, the one who has come from God to set things right Jesus is, is saying, yes, you're right by coming on that donkey. I mean, this is what is happening in this moment. And then, just to put this in further context, what takes place immediately after the story is what we've been studying over the last several weeks. Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples, and he spends time encouraging them and teaching them and really preparing them for when he will be dead and gone from their midst. And then immediately after that, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, tried, mocked, beaten, tortured, crucified, killed, and buried. And I find it fascinating, I think really important, that in the middle of this grand view of miracle-doing, wonderful preaching, divine Jesus and his execution, we read this Palm Sunday story. I think it encompasses both of those aspects. And we've been, if you've been around the last few weeks, we've been talking about this a lot, that even in the telling of John's story of Jesus, you know, being arrested and tried and all the things I just said, killed, even in that, he wants us to see how marvelous Jesus is, how magnificent Jesus is. He wants us to remember the divinity of Christ, even as Jesus is killed. And in the Palm Sunday story, it's like both sides of Jesus are put forth. You could even say that the divinity and humanity of Jesus are put forth, but you could say just this magnificence and the humility that that causes him to willingly go to the cross are put forth. And 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 here's how I know that because of partly John 12:16. This is how the Palm Sunday story ends in the book of John. John 12:16 it says at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, when I was preparing for Palm Sunday, this is the part that really stood out to me this year. Like I've said, I've I've preached on the triumphant entry of Jesus for 10 years now, um, except for last year when I skipped right over it. But I think this is the 10th or 11th time that I've preached on this story on this day. And, and this year, for whatever reason, it was this 
verse and this line that, that really captured my attention. The disciples, at first, they did not understand all of this. That's interesting to me. And the question is like, what did they not understand? That feels really important. I mean, here's John, one of the disciples, saying, yeah, we didn't get it at first. But if it's a simple declaration that Jesus is the Messiah and the King, well, then they definitely should have understood it, right? Because the masses seem to understand that. I mean, the people came out, they declared this psalm that's a messianic psalm. They had the palm branches, they laid their coats at his feet, they recognized him as king, it's not even in the psalm. They wave in the branches for victory. I mean, the crowd seemed to recognize it if this is just a statement about Jesus being the Messiah and the king. So how could the disciples not have understood it's not dissimilar to another statement made in uh, John 2.22, but first I'll read to you John 2.19. Uh, Jesus has been asked for a sign uh, to prove that he can do the things he's doing, and he answers them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And then in John 2.22 we read, after he was raised from the, the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Same idea, right? It wasn't until later, after the resurrection, when they understood what Jesus was talking about. The same idea takes place in uh, John 14, 5 through 11, at the Last Supper. Philip and Thomas, just they cannot conceive of where Jesus is going. He says, I'm going somewhere, you can't come. And they just cannot, they cannot fathom why Jesus is going somewhere that they can't go or where he can possibly be going that they cannot follow. And likewise, these, one of these guys, they just can't understand why he won't show them the Father. And she's like, you should know the Father. You've been around me. They just can't grasp it until later. Now, none of you will remember this, but a couple of months ago, I mentioned that one of the big teaching strategies in the book of John is that he uses these misconceptions where when people take things on the surface level from the mouth of Jesus, then they completely misunderstand him and they're just, just like, that can't be right and now I'm against you. But when people look to the deeper meaning, the spiritual meaning of what he is saying, then they see the brilliance of the words that he has uttered, the speeches that he is giving and so John uses this to teach about Jesus. Here's the thing that Jesus says. Here's how they misunderstand him. But it's only later that you're really going to understand what this is all about. And I mentioned at that time that we can only really understand the entirety of Jesus' life when we look at it through the lens of the resurrection. If we read anything in the book of John, we need to read it through the lens of the resurrection. Now, you know, obviously when you're saying, why didn't they understand? Then you say, well, because they couldn't read it that way. But for us, we, got, we have to. We have to read it backwards. We have to look at the life of Jesus through the fact that he came back to life after being killed. And so John here is saying we did not get this. We did not understand the ramifications of this, the fullness of this event until after Jesus' glorification, which, by the way, in the book of John, means Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. That's how he uses the term 
glorification or the glory of Jesus. So I say all that and I haven't answered the question at all, right? I mean, what is it that they didn't, what is it that they didn't understand? I mean, the crowds understood that his riding in on a donkey declared him to be the Messiah and surely the disciples got that too of Bob, you know, from over there in some other part of the world comes to Jerusalem and recognizes, wow, he's declaring himself to be the Messiah. Then surely John did too, right? Here's what D.A. Carson says, the full significance of this parabolic action and the scripture on which it is based, neither the disciples nor the crowd grasped until after Jesus had been glorified and the Holy Spirit poured out. Gerald Borchert, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, says the glorification of Jesus would enable the disciples to recall the event in its proper perspective, but at this point they still could not integrate the Old Testament text their view of Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus' life and teachings. I know that was all kind of wordy, and you probably have no idea what the answer is yet, but let me hash it out by, I think this is really important, reading you the context of Zechariah 9.9. And I said that in Zechariah 9.9, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, it fulfilled this incredible messianic prophecy. But when you read Zechariah 9, 9 through 11, I think that we begin to understand what the disciples would only come to understand later after Jesus had died, come back to life, and ascended into heaven. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. That's the part they're thinking about at the Palm Sunday story, but listen to the rest. Lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. See the humility and lowliness of that passage i mean yes he's king and that's what they wanted they wanted a king that would come would gather a following would start a military and would overthrow the romans they would kick the romans out of there and set the israelite people free from the oppression that they had lived under for a very very long time and in zechariah 9 9 we we I mean, yeah, here comes your king. He's righteous and he's victorious. And I think in this moment that all of them grasp that, right? Like everybody in the crowd is like, this is a statement about his kingship. This is a statement about his victory. But I think in the Palm Sunday story and what Jesus is doing, he's also declaring the rest of those verses. He's showing that he is going to fulfill all all of that prophecy he comes in lowly and riding on a donkey which is another statement of humility a king that is going to overthrow the military you know would have come in symbolically on a horse but i also just think pragmatically you come in on a horse you want something that can run if you're starting a war right like you want to come in on donkey from shrek like that's not how you do it right like you're coming in on a a real animal Uh, and and so they miss this part. And then, I mean, think about the other words here. No more war. 
That's quite the opposite of what they're looking for in this Palm Sunday story, the crowds. I mean, they're looking for a guy that's going to start a war. That's what they want here. And it says no more war and peace. And does it say peace for Israel? No, because that's not what he came to do, but that's what they were looking for. It says peace for all the earth. There's a mention of blood. There's freedom. Leon Morris says the crowd thought of him as king in the wrong sense. After the glorification, the disciples thought of him as king in the right sense. I want to go back to that quote that I read by Gerald. The glorification of Jesus would enable the disciples to recall the event in its proper perspective. But at this point, they could still not integrate the Old Testament text, their view of Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus' life and teachings. You see, all these things just didn't seem to go together for the disciples. I mean, it's like, all right, a king's going to set things right for us. That's great. But also, like, how do we factor in, like, Isaiah 53, where it says this king is going to die? And here is Jesus who teaches with this incredible power and might, and we have come to believe that he is the son of God, the Christ. But he's a homeless guy that walks around and hangs out with sinners and doesn't have a place to lay his head at night. And how do we reconcile that that he's begun to predict to us that he's going to die? But we believe he's come to set us free as king. And how do we get these two things to go together that he's going to be a king that lives forever but also suffer on our behalf how does this work and in the palm sunday story and that passage that it fulfills in zechariah 9 we see all of that coming together and in jesus riding in on this donkey it's as if he's saying you're right i am the king who has come to set things right i'm the son of god I am divine. I am the Holy One. I am magnificent and righteous and glorious. But I'm also your humble servant that is going to sacrifice for you, that's going to lay down my life so that all of you, Jew and Gentile alike, can have salvation. I don't know if it's intentional, that John places this almost directly in the middle of this book, but I think it is awesome that he does because he places it kind of in the middle of of what we could take as two different, and I've said this a lot lately, we could look at it as like two different Jesus. It's like we have powerful preaching, miracle working, word of God who came from heaven, Jesus, and oh, by the way, we have suffering servant who's washing his disciples' feet and preparing him for his death and then is arrested, mocked, beaten, killed, Jesus. And the Palm Sunday story just smashes them together. And I think of all the moments for the disciples, it's probably the most confusing because it's like, what Jesus, what Jesus is this? What Jesus do we need here? And the Palm Sunday story, it's, the Jesus, and he's all that you need. He is your king. He is the son of God. He is the word who has created all that has been created, and he has come to take the very nature of a servant, being obedient to the Father, even unto death, death 
on a cross. And I love the word. The single word that I think encompasses all of this is Hosanna. It's the word that's so prominent on Palm Sunday. And I think it's this, this statement, right? Like, Lord, save us, or God is saving us. A savior. I mean, that's such an easy word for us to attach to Jesus if we've been in Christian circles for any amount of time. But I think it's the word that captures, it captures all that Jesus is presenting himself to be in the Palm Sunday story, Savior. We talk about Jesus as Savior. We sing about Jesus as Savior. I preach about Jesus as Savior. But, but, I, but sometimes in church words, you know this, words that you use a lot in Christianity, they can have less meaning. But I think about what it requires to be a Savior. A Savior has to be strong enough to save, right? But a Savior has to be humble enough to be willing to save as well. We think about great heroes, people who have saved others. And, and what do they do? They have the strength to save, but they also have the willingness to sacrifice for that salvation. You think of people who jump in to save their drowning children and end up dying themselves. They were strong enough to save their child, but it required their own self sacrifice. You think of people who actually jump in front of a bullet for others. You know, the Secret Service, that's their job, right? And you think, wow, like, who does that? And somebody that's both strong enough to do it, but willing to sacrifice at the same time. The Palm Sunday story tells us that Jesus is both strong enough and loving enough, humble enough to be our Savior. Jesus could only be the Savior by encompassing all that the Palm Sunday dim story demonstrates about his character and his nature. And as you think about this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, I hope that you will recognize that Jesus is king in all that that encompasses, but he is also the humble servant who sacrificed for your sins. And it is those two things that allow him to be your savior. And if you believe he is those two things, then you should give him your life and worship him with all of your life. Let me pray that you'll do those things. Lord Jesus, I think that this story is, is beautiful and it's, frankly, it's complexity. Uh, when it was just a beach ball kind of hidden thing for me as a kid, Lord, I think I missed so much of the profundity of this story and, and frankly, the, the tension that is in this story and the days to follow. And, and Lord, I, I, as I imagine it through the eyes of your best friends, your disciples, the 12, Lord, I, man, I imagine that I would have been even more confused than maybe they were with their incredible, you know, Old Testament upbringings, God, because in this moment, like, these things that seem so paradoxical came together, Lord. Your, your divinity and your willingness to sacrifice on my behalf. And God, I do believe that's what makes you Savior. But as I think about that, praying now, Lord, 
I think it also points uh, to the incredible grace that it required for you to be our Savior, Lord. The fact that you are King, that you are God, and yet you would come and suffer for me is driven by another part of your character, and that is love and graciousness. And so I pray that we would remember how incredibly loving and gracious you are as we uphold uh, your kingship and your sacrifice together, Lord. God, I pray uh, that people who have not decided to make you their savior would recognize that you are the savior. And in fact, you are the only way to salvation. You are the only way that we can be saved from our sins because you are strong enough and sacrificial enough, God, to be our savior. And I pray that they would choose to give you their lives, God, that they would come to you, that they would run to you, Lord, that they would, that they, God, would, would confess their sin to you. Uh, they would believe in the death that you died, God, for the forgiveness of that sin, and they would embrace you as their Savior, Lord. And for those of us that are Christians, I pray that we would see you rightly, Lord, that we would, that we would never put your, 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 you know, your, your kingly ways, God, over and above your, your incredible, gracious sacrifice on our behalf, but we would, we would take those two paradoxical, paradoxical feeling things about you, and we would uphold both of them, and we would recognize you as the king who suffered on our behalf, Lord, and it would compel us to glorify you with every ounce of our being. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.